0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals and this is number seven of the consideration of the second coming of Christ in the New Testament. It is our custom in this meeting to read a portion of scripture together so that those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Those of you who have just read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, may wonder why it was chosen. Well, for one reason, it introduces the epistle that we're going to consider this evening, and secondly, it already contains a suggestion that we want to keep well in mind, especially when dealing with this epistle, that the whole church was not addressed right the way through. This epistle divides up into groups. He had heard of a complaint that was lodged by the house of Chloe, that there were contentions among some of them. It wasn't everyone that was addressed in that particular. And then when you turn the page and come to such a frightful chapter as chapter 5, we mustn't say that every single individual member in the church at Corinth was guilty of this immorality. And when we go further in this epistle, as we shall presently, we shall find that there are some who seem to be the Jewish members that are addressed, as separate from the Gentile members of that very church. Well, this only makes me feel that I want to emphasize what has been very patent about this series, I believe, that it's not possible to take a subject like the Second Coming of Christ or any other subject in the Scripture and merely lift out a string of texts as proofs. If you've ever done it, I hope somebody has come along and said to you, but what about and something in the context that you've never bothered about? Well, what about the book in which that verse is quoted? Well, what about the dispensation that was obtaining at that time? Well, what about, you oh, what about, yes, if we don't understand, what about these things? We should be saved a good many mistakes and save ourselves from misleading others. So that I purposely went solidly through a good many passages in the Old Testament. Anyone who was itching to get some spectacular revelation about the second coming would most likely be disappointed with this series. And so this evening, we've got one Corinthians in front of us. And in that epistle, there is, related on several occasions, a reference, almost a passing reference, to the second coming of Christ. But as we see it in its context, as we realise the passages which contain it, I think we shall be richer for our study than if I merely strung together the three or four references in, in Corinthians, the one, or possibly two in Hebrews, The one or two that cut in the epistles of Peter, James and John, we could get them all in one evening. But I don't think that would be the wisest procedure. So here we are. Now first of all, in the first seven epistles that Paul wrote during the Acts of the Apostles, there were three main individual epistles. Galatians, Hebrews, Romans. And these three have one text among the three of them. He has taken one text and instead of dividing it into three parts and saying firstly, secondly, and thirdly, my brethren, he wrote a complete epistle on the words faith, a complete epistle on the word just, and a complete epistle on the word live. So that you take the, piece, the verse out of Habakkuk, which he quotes three times, and in Galatians, it's the just shall live by faith, emphasizing faith. In Hebrews, it is the just shall live by faith, not merely boast of a doctrine. And in Romans, the emphasis is upon just, the righteousness of God by faith. Well now, we have in this epistle a reference that comes early. But before we do that, I want to compare the first verse with almost the last. <laughs> Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Does anybody say, and who was Sosthenes? Well, let's look, shall we? The Acts of the Apostles, the 18th chapter. So you say, here we go again. We're supposed to be looking at Corinthians on the second coming, and we're bothering our head about Sosthenes. Well, you find that Paul is at Corinth in this 18th chapter, and then a turmoil arose, and we discover that Crispus, verse 8, chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. And this man, Sosthenes, is mentioned in the 17th chapter. Uh, 17th verse, I'm sorry. And all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue. He had been sent to take the place of Crispus, who had become a Christian. Sosthenes takes his place, and Sosthenes is beaten before the judgment seat of the Roman governor. That's not the best way to convert a person. But by the time you read about this man the next time, Sosthenes has followed in the footsteps of Crispus, and he is such a Christian that he joins together with Paul, writing back to the church at Corinth. That's a triumph, isn't it? Well, now you say, what's that got to do with the second coming? Oh, thing, I said we'd look at the last chapter, didn't I? Now, I don't know whether you've ever pronounced these words that come at the end of chapter 16, verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. That's a good one, isn't it? Uh, we know the word anathema. It means to pronounce a curse on a person a word I hope we shall never have to use with regard to one another. But Maranatha, what does that mean? Well, it's an Aramaic word, not Greek, and it simply means, the Lord will come. The Lord will come, or the coming of the Lord. Now, why should the apostle, writing to Corinth, use an Aramaic word? Well, don't you see? Corinth was a Gentile city. And there was a church there but there was a strong element of the Jewish people in that church. By the sheer fact that we have Sosthenes uniting with Paul at the beginning and we have Maranatha instead of saying the words the Lord conneth as he could have done as he did do in the first chapter he says it all over again in the language of the other part of the same company. So this is not a mistake. You and I needed to be interpreted to us but these people didn't. So keep well in your mind That we haven't got yet, in in Corinth, a church which is like the church of the one body in its complete unity. There was still the Jewish element among them that could be addressed separately, and the the Gentile element that could be addressed separately, as we'll see as we go on. We come back to the first chapter, and we notice how he introduces the subject, verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. This is something I think we do well to remember. We don't want to be diplomatic in the sense that we use words to disguise our meaning. But the Apostle was going to find fault with this church tremendously. And yet, he observed his own canon. He said, if there be any virtue, and I put a strong stress on the word if, if there be any praise, reckon these things. He did. He said, I first of all thank my God for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Now what does this mean? Well he's referring to spiritual gifts. You say, how did you know? Well if we hadn't stopped we'd have read it in the next verse uh, that one, verse 7, so that ye come behind in no gift. You see? Now further to that It says in verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. One of the reasons for these spiritual gifts was the confirming of the testimony. Have you ever met people who say with a great sweep, Oh, I can't accept the Bible, it's bound for the miracles. Well, you open your Bible and anywhere say, Now, will you show me where the miracle is there, friend? You'll go on chapter after chapter after book after book. No, no. The miracles come just when it's necessary for God to give a witness that this is true. So that when some new thing is introduced, like Moses goes back to Pharaoh. Well Moses was perfectly right. He said, What's the good of me going back to Pharaoh and saying, Let this nation of slaves go? He said, What with you? What warrant have you got? So the Lord said, All right, Moses, that's quite right. And he did those miracles. He says, You do though, do those judos and now show that that's your witness, your testimony. Then there's a long period without miracles. When we come to the advent of our Saviour, John the Baptist came, he did no miracle. He simply was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, that was all that necessary. But when our Saviour started, so that the people should have abundant testimony and witness, the whole land was moved from one end to the other, you read the fourth chapter, one end to the other with signs and wonders and miracles. And then we've come to the time when the Bible is complete, Colossians 1 says, not merely to fulfill the word of God and complete the word of God, So we are no miracle today. And the next outbreak of miracles according to the passage we've already had before us in 2 Thessalonians, signs and wonders and lying miracles. Now if you'd like to turn to the one other passage which stresses the word confirming in connection with miracles, while we're about it, Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 4, God also bearing them witness, how? Both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. So they confirm. And writing to the Corinthians themselves, he picks up this very subject again in the Second Corinthians chapter 1. And I would like to mention this about this, these two epistles. It's a very interesting and profitable study to notice how the Apostle has used an expression in the first and picked it up again in the second. Let me give you an outstanding example. He uses the word to swallow up in 1 Corinthians 15. And when he's writing in 2 Corinthians 5, he uses it again in connection with resurrection. Now, we shouldn't perhaps have thought of it, but evidently that's a a thought that's being pursued and he hopes that you'll compare one with the other. Now, what about this confirmation? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We shall have to go back, verse to verse 16, and then come to the passage that is de- we are dealing with. He said that he was planning to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. He was planning as he should and right an itinerary. You can't possibly say, "Well, I'll come some time or another." You can't do that, I and mean, he couldn't do that. I can't do that. I have to write to the friends in Scotland, now, will these dates suit you? And they say, oh, no, that's so. all right, well, we'll alter them, we get it planned. But we've always got to say, if the Lord will, haven't we? Well, that's what it out to say. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use likeness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be, yea, yea, and nay, nay? He said, I can't make my plans so that whatever happens, I'm going to keep them. God may tell me to break them. Or but he said, that as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. Oh, don't mistake. The word I preach isn't like that. My little plans may go west, but not the word of God. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now, he which, now this word says, it. Well, it was the same word, that we have the word confirm. Now, he which confirmeth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us, so there was another reference, to supernatural gifts, as John puts it, is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now the seal and the earnest is preserved and carried over and repeated in Ephesians. But there's not the slightest reference in Ephesians of being confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles. The gifts are ceased. There's no anointing that we have like John says. If you have the anointing, you don't need anyone to teach you. Well, evidently you feel you get some help by these meetings, so that is absent so far as we are concerned. Well now we come back to 1 Corinthians and here we have the first reference to the second coming of Christ. Verse 7 So that ye come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we were looking at the first Thessalonians we found at the end of that chapter he summed up their attitude and to wait for his son from heaven. That's a basic text that covers this series. That was their attitude, waiting They were being strengthened and confirmed by the gifts that were given to them, and they were waiting for the coming of their Saviour. Now, in this particular case, the Apostle has changed a word. The references to the coming of Christ in Paul's early epistles usually refer use the word parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. And it means, mainly it means present often means personal presence. But that's a good translation, the presence. But in this particular case, he's changed the word, and he uses the word Apocalypse, which you know is the word Revelation. Some people refer to the Apocalypse instead of the book of the Revelation. And the book of the Revelation is very much to do with the second coming of Christ. But it's the coming of the Lord riding out of heaven with armies. It's parallel to 2 Thessalonians 2, the Lord himself shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, taking vengeance. Well, he's coming to make war, it says in the book of the Revelation. Well, as far as I can see in the epistles written about the church of the mystery, they are not waiting for the Lord to descend from heaven to make war with the nations of the earth, to rule them with a rod of iron and bring in the millennium they have a hope which is quite distinct and separate just before that day comes. Well, that reminds me that um, in the next verse he refers to the day. Who should also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when our Saviour returns, that will be the day of Christ. Well, what is the present day? Well, if you turn to the third chapter of the same epistle, you will see. Let's see how he starts this, oh, fourth chapter, I'm sorry, fourth chapter. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or a man's judgment yea, I judge not mine own self he says I leave that to the Lord when he comes uh, so i read on for I know nothing, our version says I know nothing by myself that is not exactly what he meant for I know nothing against myself but because I don't know it, it doesn't follow that I am not responsible for many things that I should have to account for yet am I not hereby justified that he that judgeth me is the Lord therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes So in the first chapter, the Lord is coming, and it's spoken of as the day of Jesus Christ. In the fourth chapter, oh, you say, well, where's the day here? Ah, it's buried in verse 3. If you have a marginal reference in your Bible, you'll see that man's judgment is literally man's day. You say, well, that's a strange way to put it. No. This is man's day. When the Lord comes, it is the Lord's day. And that's the key to the book of the Revelation. The changeover from the domination of man and all the things that it's brought in its claim to the domination of the Lord and all the blessed things that will eventually flow from that. So, you see, here's already interwoven, chapter 1, chapter 4, echoing this relationship of the day and the coming. Well, now, we move on from that passage to... Well, I think we'll have to go to chapter 11. But before we go to chapter 11, I must toe my own line and I must ask you and ask myself, is he addressing the whole church in chapter 11? Or is he address, addressing a portion of them? Would you say, how do we know? Well, the only way we can do is to look and see. Shall we look then at chapter 10? He said, "I thought we were looking at chapter 11. Yes, but chapter 10, uh, chapter 9 has finished one section. Chapter 10 opens another. Now listen to this: Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers, he doesn't say all your fathers, but all our fathers, is associating himself with a group. All our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea." And are all baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat? And so when I'm going to this question, were my fathers among that group? Were my fathers baptized into Moses? Were my fathers in the Red Sea? Did they cross over dry shot? Did they did my fathers eat the manna in the wilderness? Well I'm reminded in the epistle that's written to guide me that... That in that day and at that time I was an alien from the citizenship of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. I was never baptized into Moses in all my life, and I'm glad I wasn't. But these, you see, these could be told that their fathers went through the Red Sea. Would you say, of course, he wasn't referring to them only? All right, look at chapter twelve. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. always well, turned away from those whose fathers went through the Red Sea, to Gentiles who, before their conversion, were just idolaters, led by evil spirits without knowing it? Don't you see? In this one epistle to the Corinthians, he's addressing quite a number of different groups. What do you say? What are you taking a long time over that for? Well. In chapter 11, we read about the coming of the Lord. And if in that chapter, he is speaking to one particular group, it'll make you say, you see, that's why he said Maranatha. That's why he didn't use the ordinary Greek expression. He said, I want every one of you to get this, Maranatha' in the Aramaic, parallel to the Hebrew tongue. You see? All right, now let's see where it comes. Verse 33 of chapter 11. For I have received of the Lord That which also I delivered unto you. And this is closely parallel with the record in Luke's Gospel. And you can see where Luke got it from. Luke says that he had his Gospel through many witnesses. And the Apostle Paul was one of them. And the Apostle Paul received it from no man. He received it from the Lord. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance or better still for a memorial of me. There are about 12 memorials in the scripture if you like to connect them together all something that you do to commemorate some event. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now that passage has held God's people and we want to be very, very gentle. We want to honour them. They say the Lord has not come. Therefore, till he come means now at this present moment we should still do this. Now remember that. But then you say, "Look, look at the whole context. This is the only passage in the whole of Paul's writings where he refers to the Lord's table. The only passage. He never says a word about it anywhere else. And you will discover uh, that those who were taking this Lord's Supper uh, unworthily, some of them had been put to sleep, that is to say, death had overcome them, and uh, I don't think you could possibly take um, the one, the privilege. Without the responsibility also, it's all part of one story. Don't you see? Where we've been misled to a large extent is this use of the word testament that comes in verse 25. This cup is the new testament. Now that came into use through the writing of the Vulgate Latin translation of the Bible. And the Latin uh, version adopted the word testamentum to translate the Hebrew word berith. Now, the Hebrew word berith does not mean a testament. It always means a covenant. And you'll find that in the epistle to the Hebrews, in one chapter it says a better covenant, and in another chapter it says a better testament, all just the same word exactly. Now, can we say that we come under the terms of the new covenant? What do you see? First of all, when we speak of a covenant, it always means contracting party. You cannot have a covenant without somebody promising somebody else something on some conditions. That's the essence of a covenant. And you cannot possibly say, well I'm very interested in this, I think I'll join this covenant, but you can't go up and join a covenant if you're not belonging to it, you're not. You can't say, well, I believe Christ, therefore. Oh, but Christ has a great number of different people related to him and saved by him who have different callings and different spheres. Don't you see, once again, we have to look widely, not too narrowly. So, just to make sure, we want everyone who listens to this recording to be sure about this. Will you turn back to Jeremiah, the third chapter? And you will see that it refers there Not in so many words, but to the historic fact that this people were led out of Egypt. And when they were led out of Egypt, they were led out of Egypt by Moses, and they went through the Red Sea. Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. With whom? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, if you belong to that company, you believe that Israel and Judah... Are only another spiritual way of speaking of the church? Well, we can do nothing about that this evening. But there are most of us who are associated with this witness who cannot possibly believe that Jeremiah was actually speaking in his own day of a church which didn't exist and said, use the very words that would be so misunderstood, Israel and Judah. And that's what it's not, not only say we're not left with those words. Verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Don't you see this is specific? Which by covenant they break? Did your fathers break a covenant? They never had one to break, then. They were never led out of Egypt. Although I was a husband unto them. But this shall be the covenant that I will make for the house of Israel after those days that the Lord I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and so on you see? And it's closely associated in the remaining verses with restoration of Jerusalem and the land that was given to them, as you'd like to see. So, here we have the second coming of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, associated with the covenant that God made with the fathers. And that new covenant will never be fulfilled, will never be realized until the Lord comes. It was partly committed because it has two parts in it. The New Covenant has to do with the forgiveness of sins, and the New Covenant has to do do with instating the people of Israel as a peculiar people, a kingdom of priests. Now, there'll never be a kingdom of priests until their sins are forgiven, and that was started in the Scriptures. And inasmuch as the Gentiles needed the forgiveness of sins, those Gentiles who became associated with the believing people of Israel during the Acts of the Apostles, they also entered into the blessedness the forgiveness of sins, and then it stopped. Now when it's taken up again, you get one people, and they say in the book of the Revelation, unto him that loved us, and loosed us from our sins in his own blood, and made us a kingdom of priests, unto God and his Christ. That's these people who stood at Mount Sinai, and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses took the words of the people back, to the Lord in Sinai, they confirmed the covenant and they broke it. Israel really never received the Ten Commandments. They were smashed to pieces before ever Moses got to them. And the second set was not given to them at all. but put in the ark waiting for Christ who alone would confirm and fulfill that covenant. Now just in passing, I want to re- remind everyone that's listening that our brother Pastor Streets of Caldenby has produced two more Bible studies. There, possibly you have seen numbers 1 and 2, you may have seen number 3, which has to do with the problem that arises in considering Mark 16, These sign shall follow. Number 4 has to do with the covenants. Now, if anybody is a little bit shaky with regard to the word covenant and its usages, here we have a booklet, very clearly written, which I believe you would find profitable. It is published through our own publishing house, at the price of two shillings and sixpence, and it's um, uh, 36 pages. i just mention that because it may be a useful addition to the word we're giving the evening, because we are having to watch the clock all the time, and the book can still speak over and over again if you've got it. If you missed the first page, you can go back and read it. All right, well, that's so far. Now, the next chapter that's waiting for us is a tremendous one. And this again only touches upon the second coming, but you see again it's embedded in something else. Now this chapter is practically entirely devoted to the problem of resurrection. So should we look at its great subdivisions first. Verse 1 to um, verse 11 the apostle introduces the question by saying that the Resurrection of Christ, the personal resurrection of Christ, is so attested that it's not possible to sweep aside the witness to it. Notice what he says. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye believed in vain. And the word vain, in vain, runs through this. Ye believed in vain, if Christ be not raised from the dead. He says. Uh, we'll come to that in a moment. For I, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. That's the second time he said that in this epistle. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. I remember reading recently of a gathering of young preachers with a professor or a teacher. He said, Will you give me a definition of the gospel? And one said, John three sixteen. Louis said, I wasn't wanting that one. One said something else, and presently somebody said Here it is, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. There's no doctrine there, just the statement of a historic fact fulfilling Old Testament Scripture. And if that's true, friends, we have a gospel of salvation. If that's not true, all the wonderful wording of the Bible, reading it over and over again, will never save a soul. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Well, now he says, that's one thing. That, that, that's a word to you who know the word maranatha. That's a word to you who know that Sosthenes was once a Hebrew and now a Christian. But what about those of you who don't know the Bible? Because we mustn't believe that everybody in Corinth in the church have got a Bible. I don't suppose they had. That's one was drifting about. An Old Testament in Greek. That's all. He says, he was seen of Kephas. Kephas. Who was he? Peter. Well, why doesn't he say Peter? (laughs) You see, he's still saying the Aramaic name. Kephas. Then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. So, shall we say, 400 were still available to ask what their witness was. And a man who would give a witness in those early days that Christ was actually raised from the dead was exposing himself to martyrdom. He was practically putting in the pillory the Roman guard and the Roman government. So you wouldn't get a man lightly saying, Oh, I I believe it, and I was there. Oh, no, he'd take a long time to think, perhaps. But he said, there's 400 of them yet. And after that he was seen of James then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as a one born out of due time. For I am not least, for I am the least of the apostles, not worth not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and so on. So is it. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. Now, why all that? Because he was dealing with a problem. They had already begun questioning. Apparently, in both the Roman and the Greek mind, it was a very difficult thing for them to really believe that God would raise anybody from the dead. And if you say, oh, that's simple so far as I'm concerned, it may be that's because you're simple. Because it's a staggering thought to think that someone could be dead and buried and yet given life again. We are told in the Scriptures it must be that those that are in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And you may say, well, how can a dead man hear? Well, how did Lazarus hear? It's been demonstrated, in one particular, and in the Gospel of John, there's no idea that anyone said it wasn't true. They said, you know, this mighty miracle that's been wrought's going to upset us. They, they acknowledged the mighty miracle had been wrought, but they didn't want anybody to know it. So he said to them, if Christ be reached, be preached that he rose from the dead, say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead. Don't you see? The very argument he produces is this, that Christ and his people are considered as one. If Christ be raised from the dead, they will be. If Christ be not raised from the dead, they'll never be. And the figure that represents it is is what we find in verse 23. Oh, verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And again in verse 23, Every man in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits. Firstfruits. Now, that's again a reference back to the book of Leviticus. Some of the Corinthians may have had a turn to their Hebrew Christian brethren and said, well, what's this idea? What's the firstfruits? Oh, he says, you do not know. I tell you, in Leviticus, it's one of the feasts that we used to observe. See? The firstfruits. And he might say this, Look, on the first day of the week, immediately after the Sabbath, Immediately after the Sabbath, the priest in the temple took a little sheaf that had been gathered out of the barley field, a first fruits, and was waving it before the Lord at the very selfsame moment on the first day of the week. Christ, the true first fruits, rose from the dead. This is going to be a wonderful type for them to, to explain, wouldn't it? So here we have then the first fruits. Now it goes on to say, uh, But every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, they, that are Christ's at his coming. So, Christ's coming again is in the book. But you notice the connection. Then cometh the end. And you can see this, can't you? That if Christ never comes, the end of God will never be reached. It's all depending upon him. In the first chapter, it was the cross of Christ that was stressed, wasn't it, when you read it just now? In the 15th chapter, it's the resurrection of Christ that's stressed. And if Christ be not raised from the dead, you're yet in your sins, even though he died on the cross. So intimate is the work of Christ in connection with salvation. Now we see the next thing. That the purpose of God, outlined in the scriptures, running from Genesis right through to the book of the Revelation, will never reach its goal if Christ never returns. Then cometh the end. And the end is given you at the close of verse 28, that God may be all in all. There'll be a long interval as far as we can piece things together between the second coming of Christ when it takes place and the day when He voluntarily submits to the Father that God may be all in all. Look what it has to be done. There are time notes. Verse 24. Then cometh the end. When? When is to do with time? He should have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he should have put down all rule and all authority and power? For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Right to the very end of time. Right to the very almost frontier. When God to be all in all, there's an enemy to be destroyed and the enemy is death. What a terrific thing gripped the human race when by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. No wonder the Apostle who saw that stressed the resurrection of Christ and the first fruits and our union with him for there's no hope for any one of us apart from this. So it says, for he hath put all things under his feet but when he saith, all things are put unto him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things unto him, that God may be all in all. You will find that Adam is mentioned twice in this passage. First of all it says, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And then he picked up the story again, when he's speaking about the resurrection body. And this time, he refers to him in verse 45, and so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a life-giving spirit. That's the difference. Well, then we led on in this chapter to the conclusion. He says, in verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. It says that some shall be alive and remain to the coming of the Lord. So, some, will not all, he says of some, they shall not all sleep. But he says, there's one thing that's going to take place, whether you're dead or whether you're living. And what's that? You've got to be changed. So that I believe, personally, so far as experience is concerned, it won't make any difference which way you go. Oh, I know that some have entertained the idea that they may be living when the Lord comes. But they're not to pass through the same marvellous transformation as will take place those who have been dead for thousands of years. We must all be changed. And you know, can you remember in the book of Job that Job himself said that? All my appointed time will I wait till my change come. That was a little anticipation, wasn't it? We must all be changed. Is anybody here saying, I don't see why I should be changed? No, friends. But some of your friends would think it might be a very good thing, you see. And the Lord knows it's not possible for flesh and blood as it so constituted to inherit the kingdom of God. We must all be changed. But don't be afraid of the process, friends, because it'll be so instantaneous you'll not know anything about it. This is the one passage in the New Testament where the much abused little word comes, the word atom. Now, the word atom is particularly associated with nuclear fission and with the composition of matter. But the word atom in the New Testament is used of time. A split second. It's made up of the word that gives us rightly dividing, the word of truth, to divide. And the little prefix a in the front is a negative. It's something which is not divisible. A a split second. So he says, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now even in the Apostles' day, before they had cameras to take photographs, he knew that the eye, when it blinked, was so quick that it was immeasurable. So it is. The photographer that doesn't say, now stare, don't blink. It's taken place like that, you see. Twinkling of an eye. And it tells you when it's going to take place. At the last trump. Well, when is that? Well, if we keep to the teaching of Scripture, it must be the sounding of the seventh angel. Well, some people say, oh, no, it may be some trumpet after that. So, it may be, friends, but there's no other mentioned. Will you turn to the book of the Revelation? Chapter 10, chapter 11. Chapter 10, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now verse chapter eleven, verse fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded. This is the last trump that's recorded in Scripture. And there was a great there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're still dealing with a king, a kingdom and a reign. We don't move from that until we come over the boundary of Acts twenty eight into Paul's epistles of the mystery. And even then we are still in the kingdom of his dear son. We can never be outside the sovereignty of God, but kingdoms may change in their composition and in their sphere. Well, then we get the emphasis upon victory, as you see at the end of this 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? What is the sting? The sting of death is sin. Suppose that's forgiven the strength of sin is the law. Suppose you're under grace, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there we have the references in 1 Corinthians. Now, for the last few minutes that I have, I remind you that 1 Thessalonians emphasizes throughout its whole composition these three, faith, hope, and love. And the first of Corinthians is the passage we return to in the thirteenth chapter, for now abide faith, open love. Then in two Thessalonians we have an emphasis upon deception. And in two Corinthians we have an emphasis upon deception, that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, and his ministers ministers of righteousness. You see? So there's a parallel between the two sets of epistles. Well then, if you look at the general structure of the Corinthians, which is on this chart, it opens... Chapter 1, it closes, chapter 16, with the words, The Lord cometh. So it begins and ends practically on that note. And then, verse uh, chapter 1, 10 goes on, It has been declared unto me something about you which is not very pleasant. And when I look further down, it says in chapter 15, And I declare something unto you which is glorious and ends in victory. What a difference. Then we have, in the centre, chapter 5 to chapter 14, an emphasis upon the body. The body physically, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, don't abuse it. Then the body spiritually and the body ecclesiastically. And that is uh, an important warning because so many turn to 1 Corinthians 12 and say there's the church of the one body. And they forget that the Apostle has put a preface and says now concerning spiritual gifts I'm going to use the one body as a indi- indication of unity and diversity. Well, then you have, in 1 Corinthians 15 itself, starting from verse 12, where he picks up the question of resurrection, verse 12, the fact of resurrection, they questioned it. How are the dead raised up? Then run your eye down, verse 35, the manner of the resurrection, with what body shall they come? You see? They were questioning this very closely. Now, In the second section, verses 13 to 33, he brings Adam into the story. And death shall be destroyed. When? Well, you're told at the last drop. Then further down in verse 36 to 57, Adam again comes into the story where death is swallowed up in victory. Then we have two exhortations. And don't set those aside as being unnecessary. There should always be a practical result from any teaching. And when we get the wonderful teaching set before us in this epistle, surely it should have some effect upon our manner of life and our walk. So in the first case, I think we ought to look at at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34 and verse 58, just to get these two exhortations. First of all, verse 34. He, He introduces it by a quotation from... A pagan writer. But a pagan writer may sometimes tell the truth, friends, although he may not give you a revelation from heaven. And this is a quotation which would touch the minds of the Corinthians. Well, of course they say, oh, Paul seems to know this writer. That's a good idea. You try it sometimes. You may get a hearing from somebody who's very keen on Browning or Tennyson or Shakespeare or whatnot. Get that in first and then follow it up if need to be when the door is open with something which is even more wonderful than Browning, Tennyson or Shakespeare. So he says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Then he gives his own exhortation. Awake to righteousness, and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now the word awake, is actually a word used to speak of the resurrection. There are two words for resurrection. This is one of them. So he would give it a point, you see. He says we've been arguing the point of When are the dead raised up and what matter is it and how? He said, I'd like you to be more concerned about a little resurrection life now. Standing up and witnessing for the Lord in the power of his resurrection. Not merely arguing the point about something that cannot be explained. Well, that's one. And the other is on the same emphasis in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Here comes the word again for as much as you know that your labour is not in vain. In the beginning, about the word in vain, and it says your faith is vain, and here it is. Your labour is not in vain if you're serving the Lord Christ. So I commend to you once again not only the subject that's before us, the second coming of Christ, but the examination of the context and the review of the epistle or the book in which it's found. For instead of that meaning that you will be uh, neglecting your subject, You will be putting it in its context and making it live. Now may the Lord be pleased to set his seal upon the testimony once again and keep us steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord.